it going to work? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. All right. We'll see if... Uh, Are we recording? All right, go ahead and drop the microphone down. I don't need me that loud. We're bringing all these guest speakers. They got these tiny little ears, and then they speak so softly, and <laughs> microphones all messed up. Everything's all wrong. Now we got our big-eared, loudmouth pastor back. We can uh, return the microphone back to the normal configuration. All right. Tell you what, we're going to pray twice. Once to uh, get the pastor on track and then uh, we'll get the Bible study going. How about that? Let's start with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your truth, for your word of truth and the faithfulness that the living and abiding word of God speaks to us day by day, moment by moment. And Father, uh, we just rejoice that as your word goes forth, it will not return void, it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. I thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together the building in which to meet and all the grace that you provide. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All righty, we're ready for episode number 39. We've had Zacchaeus up in the tree now for two weeks, and uh, we need to get him down. So let's do that today. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Episode 39 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. It's called Interview with Zacchaeus. We concluded episode 38 a couple weeks back, three weeks ago already. That's right, because last week was our conference, and the week prior to that, what were we doing the week prior to that? Dedication. That's right, I gave a dedication message. Yeah, we did meet, but I gave the third out of four dedication messages. So today we return to the life of Christ, lesson 311 or 310, something like that. And um, we need to double check that numbering off the website. The bulletin may have been incorrect. All right, in uh, Luke 18, we've got Bartimaeus, and in uh, Luke 19, we've got Zacchaeus. And I find it kind of interesting the way people choose to spell certain names, and they choose to spell Bartimaeus with an A-E-U-S, and they choose to spell Zacchaeus with an E-U-S, and uh, it just seems to be inconsistent. King James actually does a better job. King James spells Zacchaeus with an A-E-U-S ending, and at least they're trying to stay more faithful to the old Latin uh, spellings on both of those names. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Interview with Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree or a fig tree, or a fig mulberry tree, or uh, there's a lot of guesswork on what kind of tree this was. Climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Now when they saw it, we're not told who they are here in this verse, but when they saw it, uh, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And, Z and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. All right. These are our ten verses. We want to go back now and get the details. I have seven points of study that we want to learn, we want to glean out of this episode. I think there's a lot more than that, and we'll probably go into tremendous detail, at least on a couple of these points. Um, But let's uh, just take it right from the very beginning. First of all, the events of this episode and the next actually overlap with the previous episode. So if you were here a few weeks ago when we were dealing with uh, blind Bartimaeus, or Bartimaeus and his blind begging buddy Bob, Uh, then you'll understand that we are in Jericho and that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he intends to sacrifice himself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And uh, so we have uh, events that all overlap. The end of chapter 18 has the setting of Jericho. In fact, Luke is very clear to point out as he was approaching Jericho, Uh, This is when Bartimaeus first was exposed to his imminent arrival and started hollering until such time as he uh, he got Jesus' attention. And then while he was still in Jericho, having entered, and as he was passing through, this is when Zacchaeus first begins to get word that uh, this Galilean carpenter is passing through town. And it's kind of interesting. These stories back-to-back are powerful because you have one who can't, uh, see because he's blind. You got another one who can't see because he's short, and so uh, the short guy can at least climb a tree and hope, you know, hopefully try to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Uh, Bartimaeus uh, climbing a tree wouldn't help him any. He'd still be blind sitting up in the tree, so he uh, he actually just starts hollering out and shouting out and so forth. And we get the idea too that Zacchaeus really does not intend to speak to Jesus, to interrupt him or stop him or anything. He just wants to get a look. He just wants to see who it is that Jesus is because he's heard so much about him. And he wants to lay eyes on the one that he knows is the king, the one that he knows is going to Jerusalem. And uh, so we'll have more detail on this. Uh, Coming up, though, we'll have uh, the parable of the money usage in verses 11 and following. And you'll note, uh, while they were listening to these things, that's the message he has for Zacchaeus there, Um, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Zacchaeus certainly did. Zacchaeus is responding like like everyone was supposed to have been responding back when John the Baptist was first heralding the coming of the king. And we're going to see the parallels between this passage and and John chapter 1 here very shortly. So all of these events overlap. The one we looked at, uh, 38, 39, and 40, All of these events in the last Judean ministry all occur here. And if they're not in a strict uh, sequential arrangement, we're okay with that. Uh, Hebrew thought wouldn't have had any problem with that anyway. And uh, Luke didn't have an issue with it as he recounts these events. If uh, you recall the map that we prepared for you last time, uh, we're dealing with Jericho down here just north of the Dead Sea. This was his point of entry. Uh, he He had been ministering east of the River Jordan over there in the Perean region. And uh, as the um, Passover was approaching, of course, he is the Passover lamb. Uh, he is preparing to arrive. And in fact, he has to arrive on precisely the appropriate day according to the conclusion of the 69 sevens out of Daniel chapter 9. We've taught that before as well. So counting all of these years and the hundreds of thousands of days, he cannot arrive in Jerusalem one day too soon. Uh, because uh, of the prophecy that's to be fulfilled there. We'll study that when we go to the triumphal entry of Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem as the son of David, king of Israel, riding humbly on a colt 
And he arrives precisely when Daniel said he was going to arrive. And that's, uh, that's a powerful testimony to the uh, prophetic nature of Scripture all by itself. So having entered from Perea, crossing the River Jordan here, just north of the Dead Sea, uh, he then passes through Jericho, and he's going to come up this narrow, windy road with the robbers and the other violent folks. He'll arrive here at Bethany, which is on the east side of the Mount of Olives, um, with Jerusalem, of course, being on the west side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, these are the last events that we have. Uh, the interview with Zacchaeus is 39. The parable of the Minus is episode 40. Then he returns to the home of Mary and Martha. That takes place in episode 41. That takes place in Bethany. And uh, then episode 42, simultaneous to that, is the plot to kill Lazarus. Uh, the Pharisees are uh, livid that Lazarus didn't stay dead. Uh, and now that he's alive again and testifying to uh, Christ, uh, they are going to try to murder him again. We're not sure how successful they think they might be uh, trying to murder someone who's already died once and come back once, uh, but they, uh, they can't risk keeping him alive again or still because uh, his testimony is too powerful and it's too undeniable. That's why they hated Jesus and all his miracles. They weren't doing the miracles. They didn't have the divine credentials that God the Father had sent them. And so they were very quickly losing their popularity and losing their uh, power among the people. So really, just with uh, we're on episode 39, and there's only three more to go before we reach the Passion Week itself. After we conclude the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, we have the final week in Jerusalem, which uh, starts with Palm Monday and takes you through uh, Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. So we have those all coming up. First, under point two, let's take a look at Zacchaeus and glean whatever we can based on his name, which isn't a whole lot. Names often reflect the wishful thinking of their parents uh, who provide names like pure uh, to a child. And, and if, it, if it holds true and accurate, then parents are thankful. Uh, if it's not true and accurate, then, you know, parents pray a lot. <laughs> but here's Zacchaeus. And uh, it's, it's really not a Greek name, which is why the spelling is kind of awkward. Uh, it's much more natural in the Hebrew as Zakai, Z-A-K-K-A-Y. 2140 is the Hebrew Strong's Concordance number, which is simply, uh, it means pure. And then uh, Zacchaeus takes a Hebrew name and puts it into a Greek lettering with uh, Z-A-K-C-H-A-I-O-S. And it is pretty awkward. I couldn't find, I, I kind of randomly started searching through for other words that had the kappa and the chi back-to-back uh, -back like that, where you end up with a K-C-H consonant bland and and generally your k sound is either going to be a k or a ch it's not going to be both combined but in this name it is and uh, that's the the spelling for it anyway uh number 2195 is the strongest number it has three new testament uses all three are in this chapter right here uh, this is the only episode in all the bible where we are introduced to zacchaeus and uh, we have his narrative and we don't see him again uh, anywhere else uh, there are later church traditions that do assign him as the first bishop of Caesarea. Caesarea is uh, about as far west of Jerusalem as, as uh, uh, Jericho is east of Jerusalem. It's out there on the coast. Uh, it was a port city on the western coast of Israel. And uh, whether that's true or not, it's, not, it's probably pretty likely just based on the fact that the 
uh, church historian Eusebius and the other early Christian writers actually were from Caesarea. And so uh, if there's any more credibility to any uh, of the early church traditions, the ones associated with, with uh, Caesarea are probably the most accurate only because that's where the historians were from. Uh, that's where Eusebius, for example, was from. So, uh, and, and Origen ministered there and other, other church fathers were from there. And so... Um, you know, we take a lot of church traditions with a, a big grain of salt. This one may be a smaller grain of salt. And uh, still, we don't cling to it as if it's inspired scripture. I do think, though, in the early centuries of church history, there was kind of a romanticism at work. And a lot of the legends grew up over characters in the Bible that appeared just briefly. And there was a desire to know, well, what happened next? Where are they now? What happened after the Bible was written? And so I think in that romanticism, uh, a lot of these legends came about. All right, some of the descriptions. He was, uh, you heard of the rich young ruler? He was the rich, short, ruling tax collector. Um, so let's take them just one by one here. First of all, he was rich, which in itself is not noteworthy. Uh, Plusios. P-L-O-U-S-I-O-S, Plusios, number 4145. It has 28 uses. Plusios is not necessarily noteworthy. Lots of folks are rich. Um, however, it is noteworthy because this story does come on the heels of a number of Luke narratives whereby rich people were featured negatively. All right. Uh, for example, uh, Dives. The Bible doesn't call him Dives, but that's the traditional name for him. Uh, Lazarus and the rich guy from Luke 16. Remember that? And Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and went to hell. And they, the gulf was in between him and so forth. Um, in the Vulgate, he's called Dives. And so the Latin, you know, the Roman church tradition calls him Dives. Um, basically, it's just a Latin term for a, a rich guy. And so we give that and we say, okay, well, that's his name. Um, but there was a story in chapter 16 with a rich guy who dies and goes to hell. And he has a lot of regrets. And he wants his brothers to hear about the Lord so they don't go to hell and things like that. Uh, we also have the story in chapter 18 about the rich young ruler. And he thought he could earn his way into heaven. He was all impressed with how righteous he was and how much of the law he'd kept. And uh, Jesus pinpointed one thing he could not do. He said, well, you know, you got, you're almost there. You're 99% to heaven. One thing you have left to do is just give away all your money. Give away all your possessions and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And then the rich young ruler just hangs his head. And he walks off devastated because it was an item of human effort he could not bring himself to do. And uh, we got teaching on that episode as well. There's a lot more he could pour into it. But the point being is after that message, he turned to his disciples and he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And which left them kind of flabbergasted. And they thought, well, then who could be saved? Now, on these stories of rich people going to hell comes this story now. Here's a rich guy. And he's a rich guy who has become rich by betraying his people, uh, by illegal means. Uh, he's, been, he's been a shady character for a long time. He's not just a tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, can get saved. Other tax collectors can get saved. But this guy is an arch tax collector, like an archangel or a, uh, uh, an arch uh, bishop, okay, or an arch pastor. There's only one arch pastor. That's Jesus, the the uh, chief shepherd. But here he's called an arch um, tax collector. We'll give you the vocabulary here in a moment. 
Um, but he actually is saved. He actually, uh, and I don't believe this chapter is the chapter where he gets saved. I think he's saved prior to Jesus coming to town. He wants to see who this guy is that he's heard so much about and actually placed his faith in prior to this chapter. And he just wants to lay eyes on the one that he knows is the son of David, king of Israel. Doesn't need to talk to him. Doesn't need to ask for forgiveness. Doesn't need to, um, doesn't need to uh, get saved. He just wants to lay his eyes on Jesus. You know, if you had a, a time traveling machine and you had a chance to go back in time and actually, if you were on this same road here in Jericho on this day, um, you wouldn't need to go running up to Jesus and talk to him or ask for your sins to be forgiven or get saved. You're already saved. You might just be content to, you know, climb a fig tree and, and look at him and then just cry and cry and cry until he was out of sight, you know, um, and, and we'll have more on that here too. But this this faith response is not faith unto salvation, but it's faith unto uh, what I call preparation for the kingdom, and that's uh, where a believer gets serious about his walk, where a believer comes to a moment that says, you know what, I'm going to forget what lies behind. I need to reach forward to that which lies ahead. I need to lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus had this moment. I call it the. The, the get serious crisis moment of the Christian walk. And for Jesus, he, he got at the age of 12. The age of 12, Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. You know, that the first 11 years, I kind of wasted my life. <laughs> you know, and Jesus is like, no, he didn't waste his life. I mean, he was, he was growing in st- grace and stature and favor with God and man. But you know what I'm saying? At the age of 12, he says, I must be about my father's business. And different believers hit that at different times. Uh, the scripture just convicts us and we say, you know what? No more foolishness. The time is too short. The days are too evil. The darkness is too dark. I got to be busy. I got to serve my Lord. And I think this is the moment here for Zacchaeus. And we'll see that too. All right. He's also short. The Bible doesn't often tell us physical descriptions of a whole lot of people. Uh, David, King David wasn't the tallest guy. Uh, I don't think he was quite the runt he's made out to be, but because he was the seventh son and he was shorter than his brothers, uh, I think he has that reputation. We're also told that he was ruddy and fair of face. And so uh, that kind of has fueled a lot of Renaissance artwork related to to King David. But, um, and then we're trapped by Michelangelo and the statue and, <laughs> and different things. But the Bible doesn't give us a lot of descriptions of a lot of people. Uh, but here we do. He was short of stature, small of stature. Mikros for small. Helikia is the term for stature. And it's, it's a fascinating term. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But um, it's a word that applies to a measure of a span and sometimes it references size, and sometimes it references age. And in fact, your halakia is what we would translate in English as your lifetime. Every person has a halakia. Every person has a lifespan. And we're not told in advance what that lifespan is, fortunately. I think I'd be a wreck if I knew, if I knew that I had another 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. I'd probably, I'm lazy. And I'd just say, well, okay, I'll get serious about it 20 years from now or whatever. Uh, but since we don't know, since we don't know, and we're not promised tomorrow, then today I need to be faithful. And that's a blessing that we can live one day at a time, you understand. So, Halakia can refer to um, the span of your life, 
but it can also refer to, in addition to that span, uh, refer to your stature. Okay, and so uh, if you have someone of a, and it it might seem awkward in English, but it was very normal to the Greeks, and I think it was also normal to the Hebrews because um, you can you can almost tell a person uh, and and their age based on their stature. All right, are they a little toddler waddling around and falling down and bumping into stuff? Okay, well that gives you a clue. Their stature uh, is commensurate with their age. Okay. And the same thing on the far end of the of the Helikia spectrum. You know, when you're shrunk and you're stooped and you're bent over and you're about four inches shorter than you used to be at the height of your Helikia. Okay. So the idea of stature and lifespan are not necessarily as as different as we might think, and they're more uh, they're more related, perhaps. Um but this is the term that's used in Matthew chapter 6, for example, when it says, which one of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to your lifespan? And you could think of that, well, maybe, why do they use cubit instead of hour or minute? Why do they use a, measure, a, unit, a unit of linear measurement like cubit? Well, maybe instead of lifespan, we should think of this as stature. You know, by being anxious, who can add as much as a cubit to your stature? In any event, Luke 2.52 is the testimony of Jesus Christ who was growing in stature, in grace and favor, in stature with both God and man at the age of 12 there in Luke 2.52. Other uses, um, Luke 12.25, Luke 19.3, John 9, verses 21 and 23. And uh, that's one where the, the man born blind, the Pharisees are grilling his parents and he says, look, he is of stature, he is of age, go ask him. Okay, don't ask us because we don't want to be on record under oath in the Pharisee court saying that he was born blind and now he sees. So they were saying he is of age. He is of stature. He is legally authorized to testify in your Pharisee court. Go ask him. And it's used twice in that John 9 passage. Uh, in Ephesians 4:13, probably the most significant use of stature in the whole Bible. Because what do we have in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. To do what? For the work of service. For how long? Unto a mature man, until we all attain to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so, in spiritual terms now, we're growing up to the stature of the maturity of Jesus Christ. And that's a powerful concept right there. I don't know, uh, you know, we can measure spiritual maturity in terms of babe, adolescent, mature. And that's a great spectrum. I'm not, I, I teach that. I agree with that. We go from babes in Christ to adolescents to mature. And I think that's compatible with 1 John 2, for example. But beyond babe, adolescent, mature, what's the pinnacle? Christ. The fullness of the measure of the stature, the helikia, the stature. Of Christ. And until I've reached the spiritual maturity of Christ, then I still have doctrine to learn, work a fruit to bear, glory to accomplish, the Father to please. I'm not yet to the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ, or He would take me home with my mission on earth being complete. The other place where it's used is Hebrews 11:11 11, 11, uh, in the Hall of Fame chapter there. And. Um, uh, Stature. Actually, I don't remember that one. 
thought I remembered all of these, and now I've got to turn to one. Hebrews 11. I'm, I'm rusty. Actually, this is terrible. I've been, I've been slacking for two weeks. The, you notice we had 24 teaching sessions, and uh, 22 of them were not me, so I had kind of a, a light week teaching-wise. 11.11. I should know this. 11.11. Oh, yeah, yeah. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, even beyond the helikia, even beyond the lifespan for childbearing years, since she considered him faithful who had promised. All right. So what kind of helikia was, uh, was uh, uh, Zacchaeus here? He was a mikros helikia. Mikros, think micro, M-I-K-R-O-S. In English, we turn the K into a C, so it's micro. But M-I-K-R-O, he had a micro helikia. He was of a micro stature. He was a short little guy. And as such, the crowd kept him from seeing. So uh, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable, no dunamis, he had no ability, because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And uh, appreciate that. I remember, I mean, <laughs> I went into the army at five foot six, so I understand what this is all about. You know, I came back from boot camp at six foot, having done about 28 million push-ups, lowering Alabama three inches, and, uh, and myself gaining six inches in, uh, in height. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him where he was about to pass through that way. All right, so we have the rich, short ruler. He is a ruling tax collector. He is a ruling tax collector. Talones is our word for tax collector. T-E-L-O-N-E-S, Talones, tax collector. Doug, you may have to step out. I think that was a delivery. It was a big delivery truck, anyway. Um, so Talones. We're used to Talones. Matthew was a Talones uh, tax collector. Uh, usually tax collectors are lumped together with sinners, and we'll see that here shortly as well, because he's going to dine with tax collectors and sinners. And... Um, like, who isn't a sinner? Okay, but we'll discuss that. We've talked about that before, too. Uh, but, but you take talones and you add archi in front of it, A-R-C-H-I. Uh, anytime you add arc in front of something, it means either first or ruling. Uh, so like uh, architect, for example, is a ruling um, craftsman, a ruling... Uh, in fact, architectone and architalones are side-by-side side in Strong's numbers. 754 is our Strong's numbers today. Uh, Architalones for ruling tax collector. Architectone, uh, I think, is the one right before that, number 753, as far as that goes. And then you got Archangelos, the archangel, Michael the archangel. Uh, you have the um, chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, that uh, the under shepherds, the elders of local churches, are to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Um, and, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Well, Jesus is. But what's he called? What is the Greek word for chief shepherd? It's archpoimen, arch shepherd. So this is what we see here. And uh, it is the only place it's found in the Bible. It's also the only place it's found in all known Greek literature. We don't have architalones anywhere else in, in all of Greek literature. So this includes the uh, philosophers and, and uh, the, the political writings and Plato and any other uh, Greek writers that we have. This is a unique term to all Greek literature. Now, 
The um, Back to the text here. A man by the name of Zacchaeus, which is a Hebrew name. He was Jewish. It was very normal. Uh, the Romans would employ traders, <laughs> okay, natives, okay, uh, to collect the taxes. And a nation uh, would be required to uh, pay a tribute to Rome every year for the privilege of being under Rome's protection. And uh, for the privilege of obeying Rome's laws, you had to pay tribute every year. And however much depended on the population and the wealth of the territory and so forth. And um, then each city would have a portion to pay. So uh, Jericho would have a portion to pay. Jerusalem would have a portion to pay. And all of this was organized based on what the entire nation was expected to pay. And Rome didn't care how it got done as long as it got done. All right. And so the collectors then, like Matthew and Zacchaeus here, they uh, had to put procedures into place by which they could gain the revenue. And if Rome, you know, needed, uh, say Rome needed 10 talents this year uh, or five talents this year, something like that, uh, then uh, the, these tax collectors would have to find a way to do it by taxing the, the business or taxing the caravans passing through or taxing a, a head count or taxing whatever, anything and everything, whatever the tax collector chose to do. And uh, he got whatever level of cooperation he got based upon two things. First of all, how sneaky was he to get the taxes? Uh, but then also how fearful was the population that had to make a choice? Should we go ahead and put up with these taxes or do we risk the Roman legions coming in and, and destroying the city? So usually it was a no-brainer. Uh, those that rebelled against Rome uh, you know, set the example for everybody else. Don't do that. You know, Rome will come. They will level the city and every... Uh, everyone that's not killed is packed off into slavery. So uh, this is what we deal with. Now, for the natives, of course, to the fellow Jews, uh, the tax collectors are traitors. The tax collectors are in league with the, opposed, with the, uh, the, the oppressive Roman government. And so they were outcasts. They were like lepers. They were like outcasts unclean. No part in the holiness of Israel. No part in the temple. No part in Passover. No part in any Sabbath observance. No part. There wasn't a priest in all of Israel that would partake of any spiritual life with a tax collector. That's why they're lumped together with tax collectors and sinners. See? All right. And we'll have more on that here in just a moment. Point three, uh, Zacchaeus desired to see who Jesus was, who Jesus was. And this is a very extraordinary statement. It usually just gets skipped over and people don't stop, put the brakes on and say, Whoa, wait a minute, who Jesus was. Previous information led to the desire for present identification. He already had information. He'd already had, he may have already known Matthew, for, for example. I get the idea that most of these tax collectors knew the other ones. And an arch Telones probably knew all the Telones in the, uh, in the region. All right. But Zacchaeus desired to see who Jesus was. And um, it, it's translated fairly well there in the English. I don't think... We can look at the, the Greek grammar and so forth. But he climbed on the sycamore tree, purpose clause, Hina, in order to see him, and, but literally to see who he was. Tis estin is what it says. 
which one, which certain one this one is. With the idea being that uh, he had already known. He'd already heard the stories. He'd already received the testimony. He was already convinced. He simply wanted to see what he looked like. He wanted to see who he was. And that, uh, that's an entirely different question than um, a lot of other folks might consider. And, and we'll spell this out more. I think when we actually get to the conversation here between them, when Jesus says, I must stay at your house, and when Zacchaeus receives him gladly, and then when Zacchaeus uh, testifies that he's responding to the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, where did John the Baptist minister? He ministered in the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea, probably very close here to Jericho. All right, so it's not a stretch to consider that, that Zacchaeus already had an exposure to the, the ministry of the herald, the ministry of the forerunner. He knew the Lamb of God had come into the world, and he's been hearing these stories, and he's, he's heard about other tax collectors that have come to faith in Christ. And so when Jesus says, today I must stay at your house, he was ready, received him gladly, said, all right. He doesn't say, oh, well, first let me check with Mrs. Zacchaeus and make sure we've got, you know, <laughs> there's something we can pull out of the fridge and, and, uh, and fix here for dinner. He received him gladly. You know, this is not unlike, let me, if we hold our finger here, let's look at one other place. I think uh, if you go over to Acts chapter 9. And here's a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees named Saul of Tarsus. And uh, this is the Damascus Road. And, and, and the uh, pericope heading at the top of the paragraph says the conversion of Saul. So obviously this is the chapter where he gets saved, right? Because that's what the, the publishing blurb says in between chapter 8 and chapter 9. It says the conversion of Saul. Well, those aren't God-breathing inspired, so let's pretend that's not there right now. And uh, it's interesting. They're traveling. He's, and he's putting believers to death. He hates Christians called the followers of the way. Um, they weren't just a sect of Jews as far as he was concerned. They were heretics because they were declaring Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ. And as a good Pharisee and a student of Gamaliel, Paul couldn't tolerate that. And Paul was very uh, proving of the death of Stephen in uh, chapter 7. And he, uh, he says that he cast his vote. So he's uh, a voting member of the Sanhedrin. I think he was old enough here to cast his vote, but he was still too young and not a voting member actually at Calvary. Uh, but now notice, he was clearly alive though at Calvary. We know that. Uh, and, and he was obviously a Pharisee student at that time. But so now he is on a mission to Damascus and this is uh, on behalf of the uh, Sanhedrin, but completely illegal as far as Rome is concerned. And he's going to bring them across Roman jurisdiction out of the Syrian province into the Judean province so that he can uh, kidnap uh, people and, and take them across Roman lines in order to execute them in Jerusalem. But as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now look at his question in verse 5. Look, his, he answers a question with a question, which... You know, my teachers always said never do that, but he does that here. 
Why are you persecuting me? And he answers a question with a question, and his question is powerful. And I think his question is something that makes me do a lot of thinking. Um, He does not say like the Philippian jailer, Lord, what must I do to be saved? He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Um, and, And I find this to be almost identical or very similar to Zacchaeus climbing the tree to see who the Lord was because I already had faith in the Lord, but he had never identified him face to face with a name and with a face and so forth. Zacchaeus wanted to see who he was. Jesus wants to know who he is. Or I mean, Paul wants to know who he is. He wants to know the name and uh, he's terrified that it's the name of Jesus. And that's what he's told here. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus doesn't say, believe in me and thou shalt be saved. He says, why are you persecuting me? And, um, and so I ask this question, is it possible? I'm not even saying likely at this point. You can weigh the likeliness of it or the unlikeliness of it, but at least admit the possibility that uh, Saul of Tarsus grew up in the home of a Pharisee, was himself a Pharisee. He grew up memorizing the Old Testament from his youth. He was, his whole childhood, his whole life was spent. Remember when he told Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to lead you into salvation? And this is how he grew up. His description of Timothy was also his description of himself. Is it conceivable that as a boy, Saul of Tarsus got saved? Looking forward to the coming Christ. Looking forward to the coming Christ. And so he's an Old Testament believer. And then he goes to college and he gets all mixed up. Okay? He goes to Pharisee school. Sits at the feet of Gamaliel, the the, the king of all Pharisees, and he's the star pupil. And he, Paul, now becomes the protege. Paul becomes a Pharisee of the Pharisees. According to the righteousness of the law, blameless. Not one demerit in all his years of schooling. And so filled with all that pride, and what happens with knowledge? Knowledge puffs up. There's no love in Phariseeism. Okay? Filled with all that pride, a believer becomes a crusader against what he thinks is a, is a, is a threat, and he thinks he's serving God. And he's actually just the opposite. Now, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. There are folks that tell me, no, a believer could never do that. A believer would never, ever murder Christians. Wait a minute. I believe a believer in carnality can do anything an unbeliever can do. A believer in pride and arrogance who thinks he's serving God can do all kinds of horrendous things. Again, energized by the flesh and motivated by demonic influence. And so I, my personal, uh, and, and I know others differ on this, but I, I don't think he gets saved in chapter 9. I think he was saved as a child. But in chapter 9 is when Saul of Tarsus is now able to put a name on Yahweh that he'd been looking forward to. And now he understands that Yahweh he was looking forward to actually came and the Pharisees had put him to death. And now he was resurrected and ascended with the Father. 
And this is where Saul goes from being an Old Testament believer crossing into the church. He becomes a New Testament believer. And he becomes a New Testament believer when Ananias comes to this house, lays on hands, his sight is restored, and he receives the Holy Spirit. This isn't the moment of his Billy Graham evangelism. He's not receiving eternal life right here. He already had that as an Old Testament believer. But this is his transition from Old Testament into New Testament. And he receives the Holy Spirit. And he's ushered into the church. There was a lot of that in the early chapters in the book of Acts. I think that's the entirety of what chapter 2 is about. Old Testament saints crossing into the church. So back to Zacchaeus now. He wants to see who this one, Tis, is. Who this one is. All right. So previous information led to the desire for present identification. And and we're no different, are we? Are we not waiting to see the face of our Savior? I mean, we, we know about him. We know him. We're saved. But he has not yet walked through our Jericho. All right. In other words, we have not had the privilege of seeing him bodily face to face. We see him by faith, but not bodily. And that's for tonight when we get back to Second Corinthians chapter five. <laughs> All right. Though we have seen him according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. And we have a we have a heavenly reality with Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll deal with in chapter five of Second Corinthians. All right. Jesus called Zacchaeus by name. In other words, he doesn't just look up and say, there's a short guy up on a tree. Okay. Well, there's something you don't see every day. Okay. I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe there's more of that than we know about. The Bible doesn't really describe. Maybe he would go into a town and there were all kinds of people climbing trees and sitting out of windows and taking a peek and things like that. Maybe it was more normal. But nevertheless, he walks by, he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. I must. This is a have to. Jesus doesn't have an option here. It's not a want to. It's a have to. Okay. I must. It's the language of obligation. We all have have to's when the Father gives us assignments. And here's one, and Jesus has to be obedient to it. He knows it by name. And, and this is not omniscience. Bugs me. I read a commentary and it says, of course, Jesus in his omniscience knew this was Zacchaeus, blah, blah, blah. Jesus did not use his omniscience. Not once, not one time did Jesus ever tap into omniscience. Why not? Because he had to be tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. Uh, when I get tempted, I can't use omniscience to, to figure out the solution to my temptation. Okay, And since I can't use omniscience to solve all my problems, Jesus couldn't use omniscience to so- solve any of his problems. He had to be... He had to identify with us in order to be our substitute. And so, and so he didn't use omnipotence for any of his miracles. He was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, spirit indwelled. And as the Holy Spirit revealed things to him, he knew things that would not normally be humanly known. But it was because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him and spoke through him. Or the miracles because the Holy Spirit empowered the miracles. So, um, and it's interesting, Zacchaeus... Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Uh, let's go back to chapter 1, and let's see a story here. I wondered if this was going to be a one-lesson episode or a two-lesson episode. and Of course, we started late because of the computer fiasco, but 
That's all right. Laura's still in charge. And whatever. We'll, we'll wrap it up next week, I think, and then also be able to proceed in episode 40 and start dealing with the parable that he tells in Zacchaeus' house. I'm going the wrong way. John is after Luke. I, I kept trying to find John in between Mark and Luke, and it wasn't there. Boy, is that crazy or what? All right. What it is is the Bible software is leaving me a cripple. I don't have to flip anymore. I just type J-O space 1, and the software goes right to John chapter 1. So, anyway, John 1. And I find this beautiful because here's, this is, this is kind of like bookends. You know, the beginning of his earthly ministry, the end of his earthly ministry. Okay, Zacchaeus is at the end right before it goes to the cross. Nathaniel is right at the beginning, right after he gets baptized. Okay, by John the Baptist. And in John chapter 1, verses 45 through 50, um, Philip, and he's already got Andrew, he's already got Peter, James, and John. And then he finds Philip. He's purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, they already had past information. They already knew the Christ was coming. Now they can put a name to it. Hey, we've been waiting for, you know, Moses wrote about this coming prophet. And the prophets wrote about this coming prophet. And now we can put a name to him. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And after all these years waiting for the coming Christ, to be told that he's from Nazareth was really hard for Nathaniel to swallow. Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, be like telling, an, uh, telling a Texan that, you know, the Messiah is going to come from Oklahoma. Are you kidding me? Oklahoma? All right. And so here's Nathaniel, all of his prejudice against Nazareth. And so Philip said to him, come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Once again, the commentaries will say, well, Jesus, you know, had omniscience and knew about Nathanael's heart. And no, none of that. It was revealed to him prophetically. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you when you were under the, and here it's called a fig tree. Isn't that stupid? It's the same tree. All right. Here it's called a fig tree. There it's called a sycamore tree. Uh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. And so in a prophetic vision is the Holy Spirit unveiled to Christ. Maybe earlier that day, maybe the day before, saying, you know, about this time tomorrow, you're going to meet this fellow here named Nathaniel, who is an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And he's been praying for the coming Messiah. And uh, Jesus has given a prophetic vision to see Nathaniel under the fig tree praying for the coming Messiah. So uh, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Look at his Christology. He understood that Messiah was going to be a teacher. He understood Messiah was the Son of God. He understood Messiah was the Son of David. He had no problem with all these royal titles. He had all the doctrine. All he needed to do was put a name to it. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Joseph, is the Christ. 
So Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? So there's the episode with the fig tree and Nathaniel at the beginning of the ministry. And what a, what a parallel now at the end of Jesus' ministry is he's on his way to go cru- get crucified. And now, uh, instead of a man under the tree, you've got a man up in the tree. But uh, they're both in faith looking for the coming Christ. And I find this to be interesting. And he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Zacchaeus comes down and welcomes him gladly. And you wonder if he would have said, you know, how did you know my name? Or how did you know blah, blah, blah. And Nathaniel could have been right there next to him saying, hey, he, yeah, he did that to me too. <laughs> All right. You know, kind of fun. Let's uh, close with my favorite prophet story. And I've given this before, but let's look at it again in case you've forgotten or where to find it. First Samuel chapter 9. This, I believe, was more normal than we understand. Now, this was probably routine for prophets in the ministry. All right. Probably about as common for prophets in the Old Testament as it is for pastors in the church age, you know, to get phone calls at different hours of the day and night. Uh, prophets in the Old Testament would get visions and announcements, what we call the, uh, the heavenly heads up. Okay, right? You know what a heads up is? Um, of course you do. Uh, a heavenly heads up. But look at this, First Samuel chapter 9. Samuel's just here. He's minding his own prophetic business. Um, Saul is actually coming to town. He's been hunting around for these missing donkeys. Okay. And he gets to this town. He's looking for the donkeys. Can't find them anywhere. High and low. And then they said, you know what? There's a, there's a prophet in this town. Um, let's go ask him where, where, the, and, uh, where the donkeys go. And so they go trooping on up the hill to find this prophet. Well, the day before... We're told in verse 14, uh, so they went up to the city and as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go out into the high place. Well, what a coincidence. They were going into the city to find him and lo and behold, just blind luck, here he comes walking out. Well, there he is. What do you know? Well, now we find out it's not a coincidence. It's a divine appointment. That in verse 15, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel saying, about this time tomorrow. Uh, They didn't have digital wristwatches or whatever, but uh, he could come to him 24 hours in advance and say, about this time tomorrow, whatever it was, morning, afternoon, whatever, noon, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. So he had a heads up 24 hours. He says, this guy's going to come. And here's what you're going to do. And so then when just as if that wasn't enough notice 24 hours ago, when they come face to face, the voice comes a second time. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, that's the one. (laughs) That's him. Remember yesterday? That's him. So Samuel saw Saul. The Lord said to him, behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall be ruler over my people. And so Saul approached Samuel. He's clueless. And, you know, says, please tell me where the seer's house is. And Samuel said, uh, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. How close is that to Jesus saying, come down from the tree, I must eat with you today. 
um, go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. They have been found. <laughs> I mean, this is better than Fox News and satellite coverage and all the rest of this stuff, okay? Yeah. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? And it's interesting, he announces the blessings on not just Saul, but Saul's household. Jesus is going to do the same thing. He says, now salvation has come to this house. And so there are these connections, I think, between these stories. And it's a good reminder of the, the, the ministry that our Savior had as a prophet and some of the things that he was clued into and why it was that the Pharisees had such a hard time trapping him or arresting him or, you know, uh, every time they laid a trap, he knew where the trap was and he would go somewhere else or he'd be delivered from their grasp or so forth. And uh, the one time they did catch him, he was still just as knowledgeable about the, the ambush in the garden and, the, and Judas' kiss and all of that. He knew all about it, but he volitionally submitted to the Father and said, all right, the time has come. The hour has come. And so he'd spent three years slipping out of all these traps until uh, the night before the, uh, the Passover Friday. So... Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll have more on that. Uh, we've got the grumbling coming up. We've got the reverence and the repentance. We'll see. And then the, uh, the rest of the story. So points five, six, and seven we'll cover next week. And then as we have time remaining, if it doesn't take the whole hour next week to do five, six, and seven, then uh, we can move right on into episode 40, the parable of the minus, because this, uh, this is a message that we think we've had before. Uh, actually, we have not. We've had a similar message before. And the differences are too important to try to just say, well, it's all the same thing. It's not. There is a different doctrine being taught in this chapter, and we'll, we'll tackle that next week. Father, we thank you for your truth, your grace and truth. And, Father, the privilege we have to assemble together. Thank you for, um, well, returning back to the Life of Christ series, returning back to a normal schedule, returning back to, uh, we're looking forward to all things returning to normal between now and the end of the year or now in the rapture, whatever you want to do with us, Father. But uh, we're still... Um, delighting in the fragrance of memories, the 14 pastors you brought us, the 24 teaching sessions, all the prayer, all the fellowship. Father, uh, it is a, a true blessing, and we thank you for all that you've done. We give you the praise, we give you the glory, and we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.